I'm sure some folks will still participate in politics, hoping they can find a benevolent ruler to at least mitigate uh, some of the infringements in place now. But guys, that's, that, that's a road to nowhere. It's a road to beatdowns on the street, extortion, and democide, with an even greater loss of freedom year after year, election after election. And it's, it's one of the most vicious falsehoods perpetuated throughout the ages. Uh, you know, the, the, the uh, naive notion that politics can set you free. Uh, and that's why I've been so harsh on the anti-libertarian libertarian party, uh, because, uh, as I've said before, that people are sick of politics, the left-right paradigm. So what do they do? They give them more politics. It's, uh, it's the most uh, uh, insincere and ingenuine thing you can do to a fellow human being. It really is dangerous to be an anarchist, and it, it will only get... I mean, it, you know, as per kind of the, the stages of agorism that Conkin kind of laid out, it, it, it's going to get worse, and then it's going to get better. But, you know, when it, when's it, when's it going to start getting better? You're listening to Liberty Under Attack Radio, and now your host, Shane. And welcome to Liberty Under Attack Radio, your home for anarchism and action. I'm your host, Shane. This podcast, everything found on the website, is covered by BIPCOT's No Government License. This allows reuse and modification to anyone except governments and the bludgies thereof. You can learn more by visiting uh, BIPCOT.org. So a special welcome to the folks getting early access to this episode on YouTube. Uh, it'll be at least a week or so before it gets put out on the podcast feed as I'm transitioning uh, server hosts now or website hosts and it's a little complicated with the uh, LUA site being 35 gigabytes. It's a little, little more of a complicated process. But uh, anyways, it's great to have you here. Please feel free to drop any questions, comments, uh, and chat. Subscribe to the channel and share this video around. My special guest today is someone I've recently become familiar with, I guess probably in the past uh, 30 days. And uh, in the past few weeks, I've watched every single video on his YouTube channel. He's in the midst of a crypto-anarchism series where he interviewed the likes of Jim Bell, Timothy May, and Cody Wilson, the latter of which I watched all the way through on three different occasions. Uh, he's also an Austrian economist and a Bitcoin maximalist with quite a negative outlook upon every single altcoin. His podcasts have been ch uh, challenging intellectually, and I've learned uh, quite a deal in just a short few weeks. Uh, let me just say, I've been excited for, uh, for this uh, interview. Uh, so J.W. Weatherman, welcome to Libre Under Attack Radio, man, and uh, I guess also kind of the Vani podcast, too, because I'll put it out uh, on there, because we're in the midst of a crypto-anarchism series on that one. So uh, anyways, uh, how's it going, man? Uh, it's going really, really good. I'm really excited to talk to you guys and uh, dig through all your content too, because it sounds like we're uh, we're kindred spirits. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes. We were talking in pre-show uh, about uh, you know my audience and how uh, they're you're purely uh, you know apolitical. I mean, in the show intro that I'll, I'll add to this in the podcast feed. I mean, it's just really against the Libertarian Party and stuff. So, um, so yes, uh, you know, solutions. You know, how to how to actually find freedom because uh, politics is not uh, not the way to uh, to go about doing that. So, so first off, man, great work on you know the the incredible content over there on on your YouTube channel, which I'll put uh, uh, in the uh, in the show notes. And it's also on screen as well. Uh, but my favorite uh, my favorite uh, uh, so far is the interview with Cody Wilson. Um, but uh, obviously, Tim May and Lynn. Uh, Lynn Ulbricht are, are close second, but uh, how was it talking to Cody? I'm, I'm really, I, I live in Austin. I haven't talked to Cody yet. <laughs> oh, you know, it was, it was really great. I obviously been a fan of Cody for a while. Um, and, uh, it was, it was really nice. I mean, he's like, he's a very laid back, personable, uh, interesting dude. Um, you know, this, and I think you get that like more in the second hour. Um, 
I used to try to think that I needed to cut down the podcasts. Um, and when I, when I did a few of the first ones, I was really trying to keep it under an hour. Um, and I've gone back and forth, but especially that Cody interview just re I don't know, re-solidified my commitment to doing the long form stuff because it's like the second hour after you've covered all the stuff that, uh, that gets all of the, you know, the, the really important stuff out of the way. Um, then you can just kind of relax and just talk, uh, like person to person more. And that's, that's where I feel like I get a lot more out of the conversation. And, uh, but yeah, it was, it was really, it was really great. I mean, he's definitely the kind of guy that I would hang out with if, uh, if I wasn't doing this sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, that that is true. That is true. And if uh, you just look at uh, you know what the, how like guess what uh, what the media plays of him and his interviews, uh, you might you, you you don't really get that deeply philosophical. I guess deeply uh, you know uh, intelligent. I guess obviously you can tell he's intelligent in the interviews, but that kind of deeply intellectual side with his uh, you know study of his deep study of philosophy. And uh, there's a video on YouTube I've watched. Uh, uh, a couple times all the way through, and this was back in like 2013. So he's like 24 years old, and he was kind of explaining the, I guess, the philosophy of you know why they're doing this, the 3D printed gun. And uh, the dude is brilliant. Um, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Um, I, at, at age 24, uh, you know, and that's uh, and that's uh, I guess uh, it was a I guess it was a speech that he gave or a lecture he gave uh, back in college. So. Um, yeah, really, really incredible guy. Glad, glad you got to talk to him. But yeah, like I said, I watched it through all, all the way through three times. And uh, yeah, you're def- definitely a really, really great interviewer. And you, you obviously you understand understand crypto anarchism. So that's absolutely great. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks. It, w- it really was fun. I think one of the things that was uh, something that I I know that's out there, but uh, but it it didn't really hit me until I talked to him how much Julian Assange influenced Cody um, and just how powerful that is. Like the crypto anarchist movement has inspired generation after generation of people, you know, it's only 30 years old, but, but uh, group after group of people have, have kind of realized that this is the right way to do things. This is the way that we can make an impact and make the world a better place. Um, and it's, it's super interesting and fun for me to sort of trace that intellectual uh, lineage a little bit. Um, so I wasn't, I wasn't aware that that was such a direct tie, but it, it made a lot of sense, uh, after talking to him. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it definitely makes me more and more hopeful. Uh, I don't think there's a ton of us, uh, you know, we're probably numbered in the thousands. Um, <laughs> but, but the, that unreasonably outsized impact that we can have, uh, is really encouraging when you realize that there, there are a bunch of these different threads of people that are working for the same goals and are really, you know, really effective. Right, right, and, and and you made a good point there. I mean, this is this is a pretty like crypt, the cypherpunks and crypto anarchism is a, a pretty new thing. And just look at all that's gotten done in you know thirty years uh, with all of the you know the the uh, uh, implementations of privacy on the on the internet, public key encryption, uh, Bitcoin, uh, just all sorts of stuff like it like the stuff. It's really, really, I guess, uh, life changing and, and world changing technologies, and it's really, really just the beginning. And I feel like for folks that focus on politics and the news cycle, it's just this this swamp of despair, and there's there's really no hope, obviously. But if you if you take a, kind of take a step outside of politics and look at uh, you know the the, the cypherpunks and crypto anarchism and all of the really incredible things that are happening there, obviously, especially with Bitcoin, uh, there's a lot to be hopeful for. Uh, the state really does not uh, understand this technology um they, they 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 don't understand it and uh you know that the crypto anarchists can get really far ahead before they know before the state even knows what, what, what really happened so uh there's a lot to be hopeful for um as, as long as you stay outside of the political realm uh at least in my opinion 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. And I think um, I don't think that's accidental. I think that, you know, politics is basically a crumple zone for outrage. Um, so it takes all of our energy and our desire to sort of throw off the shackles that we have and it just absorbs them. Right. It allows us to like you know, pick your path. So a Democrat, Republican, and then within that, pick your path. And by the time you get to the end, you just, you're out of energy, right? It's just slowly sapped away any hope that you had for making the world a better place. And I think that there's a good reason for that uh, phenomenon. And it is that if you're trying to change the world through politics, or education, you're you're kind of uh, you're kind of trying to change human nature, right? Like if you think about it, what what really is going to going to change here? Like we're we're all basically the same people that we were a thousand years ago. Um, why don't we still have racial slavery, for example? It's not because there was really really eloquent people that convinced us that racial slavery was a bad idea. Um, and that's, that's sort of the, the hopelessness of trying to go after this with, uh, politics or, you know, Mises university, uh, trying to go after the, the purely education route, which really, I mean, let's face it, those guys are trying to educate people and motivate them to deal in politics. So it's ultimately a, a political solution anyway. Uh, but I think that's why it's really hopeless. On, on the other hand, we have stuff like, uh, the internet and we have stuff like e-commerce and we have stuff like Bitcoin and, um, and WikiLeaks has had a pretty big impact for just a few pe- few people that have worked on that project. Um, we have things like Cody Wilson's 3D printed gun. Um, and the thing that all of those have in common is they're just building new tools. I don't have to change human nature. I don't have to make people, um, you know, more selfless or more intelligent or anything else. I can just build tools and put them in their hands and that'll change the outcome. We'll, we'll change the environment, not not the nature of people. If it's cheaper for me to defend myself, I'm going to defend myself more. Like we know that from right. economics. It's simple. It's easy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And in the, in the realm of Vanu, which uh, I guess it's uh, to, to explain it real briefly, uh, it was, uh, I guess, a freedom strategy developed largely by a guy named Rayo back in the 1960s. It's kind of this lost libertarian, uh, you know, philosophy and, and, and uh, you know, I guess method, method of, or I guess strategies of direct action. And uh, he has this idea um, called, uh, I mean, he, he calls it, I mean, it's it's basically just mainstream society. He calls, he calls it the state of servile society. And what I really really appreciate about uh, you know crypto anarchism and other solutions that aren't geared towards changing hearts and minds is that the the nature of the servile society, the nature of man, can stay the same. And Vani was just premised upon making uh, you know radical lifestyle changes in pursuance of freedom, uh, rec- recognizing that you know the state of servile society has always been here. There have always there will always be people who clamor for handouts from the government. So there'll be always there will always be those folks that. Uh, you know, I guess desperately want to get uh, get into those positions of power, and there'll be people that that will allow it. Um, so any any strategy or solution not premised upon changing hearts and minds or changing the nature of man or the nature of society, uh, I'm heavily heavily in favor in uh, or heavily heavily in favor of. Um, so yeah, I think that's a that's a really really good point uh, because uh, you know education's been there for a long time. Uh, that was kind of you know how the libertarian movement started back uh, I think in like 1930s or 40s with fee, um, and I mean. <laughs> I mean, yeah, people, you know, more people might have, uh, you know, come to Austrian economics, and that's great. But I guess my main, my main shtick with, uh, with, uh, with, uh, you know, anarcho-capitalists and I guess the pure theorists is that there's really no action. It's you know, in this hypothetical free society in the future, um, you know, this is how things could, o- this is how things could operate. And it's like, well, what about now? Uh, you know, the state exists, and uh, you know, we're we're all enslaved. So what are we going to do about this now? And uh, you know, it's just kind of crickets, right? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I am a huge fan of Murray Rothbard. Um, I talk about him probably uh, too much uh, in some ways. Uh, but uh, but one of the things that I think uh, 
is is a problem with what he did, or at least didn't take it far enough, is he he took from Mises's solid understanding of economics and he applied that to government. And you know that's that's huge, and it it had a lot of implications. Uh, if monopoly services give us bad results, uh, what about monopoly services provided by the government? Shouldn't we expect them to give us bad results? So I think there's a, a ton of value, and I'm definitely oh, yeah. uh, a fan of his work. But I think one of the things that he didn't uh, do very effectively. Um, and it's something that I've, I've, I kind of ignored for a while, but the, um, the, the pushback that a lot of people have on, well, why isn't there a libertarian world right now? Why isn't there a, a stretch of earth where, you know, you have this libertarian utopia you can point to. And I think that, uh, I think his response to that was a little bit weak. Um, in some places he said, you know, look, worst case scenario, we end up with a state again. Right. And that's a little bit true. Right. But it's also a little bit of a deflection. I think if you look at that problem head on and you stare at it for a while, you end up saying, well, actually, yeah, we, we, it doesn't work, right? We, the cost of defending is just simply more expensive than the cost of attacking. Um, we don't have roves of uh, wild men, you know, going around and killing everybody in the village and taking their stuff, but it's not because the nature of man changed. It's because we ended up with, you know, other structures or other things that made that too expensive. And one of those things is actually that we're all essentially enslaved and our slave owners put a little bit of work into making sure that that doesn't happen. Um, so how do we end up in a world where we have freedom? The answer is we have to make it more expensive to attack than it is to defend. Um, and one of his answers was maybe we could do that with insurance. Maybe, uh, you know, we would have a, a free market of private defense. And I think that that is, I mean, it, a lot of the times he said stuff that was so profound to me that it, it like, it just blew me away to the point where I wasn't as critical as I should have been. And I think these are a couple of those spots, but the response to that is, okay, great. Why don't we have that? Why don't we have the ability to buy insurance to protect ourselves right now? And more importantly, what's going to change so that we end up in a place where we can do that. And I think the cypherpunk movement is responsible for having that knowledge and saying the answer is not just technology broadly, which I feel like somebody like Rothbard should have got that, frankly, but that's kind of like looking at a hero and saying, you know, they should have saved 103 people instead of just 102. <laughs> so it's hard for me to be critical. But when I do look at things like the Mises Institute and Rothbard's legacy right now, I think that's even more frustrating because for those guys living in 2018, it is very obvious, in my opinion, that the only way forward is through building tools and through technology. And I think the cypherpunk movement saw that, but then they also saw that within that, it's not just tools and technology broadly, it's specifically software encryption computer networks um, is our most uh, likely path of success. And I think that's true today, and I think that's why we've made progress. Um, and I, I would like more of the uh, of the the ANCAPs out there to get that point, that it's not good enough to want to get here. Now the question is strategy. How do we get there? And the answer is obviously build tools. There's, there's, you know, at this point in time, it's obviously build tools. Right, right. And I mean, not not to take any, anything away from Rothbard or Mises. I mean, I, w when I first found anarchism back in 2015, I mean, that was my, the next six months of my life was just, you know, reading a ton of books and trying to understand the, you know, the philosophy and the theory. But there's a certain point where I said, okay, 
Now, could I, you know, get, could I learn all the million different nuances, uh, you know, within this uh, to, you know, further elaborate my position? Sure, I could. But I've got this, this free market philosophy, this free, this free market theory. Now, uh, let me just see how I can work this into the real world. Um, you know, those, but I, I don't, a lot of people don't hit that point, unfortunately, I don't think. I, I, there's, there, there's this, this idea that Rayo, um, the main proponent of Volney, talked about back in the 60s, and it's the, this, the duality of, of, uh, of theory and, uh, I, so I guess, philosophy and action, or, uh, you know, theory and practice. Uh, one without the other isn't very useful. Uh, if you don't have a good philosophy backing your action, then you'll tend to blow with the winds of political expediency or, you know, whoever, whatever, uh, whatever great man, you know, sounds best to you. And if you, um, you know, just have theory without practice, I mean, you're not really existing in the real world, right? Um, so I, I, I obviously don't take anything away from Rothbard or Mises, but um, I think, uh, you know, as, as anarchists, um, I, I think one of the one of the, the the biggest motivations for for doing what we do and, and you know talking about these ideas is that we want to see a free world and so the the question you know then becomes well how do we bring it into fruition uh, and i think that's the something missing uh, unfortunately and this is what Rayo talked about this back in the 60s he bitched and complained about it and i understand why things really haven't changed that much yeah, I, I mean, it's easy to look back and say Rothbard should have realized that it was tools that would move us forward. But if it wasn't for Mises, we wouldn't have had Rothbard. If it wasn't for Rothbard, um, or you know, the and I, I I tend to give Rothbard credit for this, even though um, I think the the Freedmans were the connection between uh, a lot of Rothbard's ideas and the cypherpunk movement, but. Uh, but I don't think those guys pioneered the stuff. I think it was really Rothbard that did that. So you got to give the guy credit. Uh, and he moved things forward so much for the time that he lived. Um, so if it's like, you know, he didn't move it far enough, wh- whatever. But, he, you know, we've had a lot of time since since Murray Rothbard was here. And he thought that maybe politics was the way to, to go mm-hmm. forward, right? I mean, he spent a lot of time flailing around, frankly, trying to figure out uh, what to do on the political front and trying to figure out how to educate people and, and build the movement. And he's got a huge legacy. And I, I do think the cypherpunk movement is part of his legacy just as much as uh, he's part of Mises's legacy. Um, but yeah, what's, what's the excuse now, right? Like uh, we've had a lot of time to see that politics doesn't seem to be very effective. And we've had a lot of time to see that technology is unreasonably effective, right? Just building tools. Yeah. Um, so at this point in time, you know, I think if Rothbard was alive today, he would absolutely uh, get it. And he would be the, probably the biggest proponent of the cypherpunk movement. Yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. So I guess I didn't expect to go on uh, you're talking about that for the first 20 minutes or so, but that's fantastic. I'm glad we, we got to talk about that. Um, but I, I think, you know, since, since a lot of my listeners might be unfamiliar with you, uh, let's, let's kind of start with, uh, w- with your background. Uh, tell us a bit about you, uh, how you got into Bitcoin, uh, et cetera. Yeah, so I have spent the last 20 so years of my life, uh, most of my professional career as a software security expert. Um, I have, uh, I've been a, an academic, uh, uh, taught at a university, uh, computer science and math. And, um, yeah, I, I basically, uh, for say the last 10 years have done software startups, um, usually related to security. Um, and after I sold my last company, I had some downtime and it was kind of on my, it was on my back burner to look into this, uh, this crazy, uh, Linden dollars meets SETI at home project that, that I had known some people were excited about. Um, and I was pretty sure it was stupid, um, uh, cause 
almost everything, you know, everything new has a pretty good chance of being stupid if you if you haven't had a chance to look into it, right? Most most of the new projects that come out every year are dead within a few years. Um uh, because most of the time it's just hype, um, especially, you know, you get really, really cynical after you work in security for a while. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so it was on my list and I finally got a chance to dig into it. And, um, and once I started looking into it, I was like, ah, man, this is incredible. If it actually worked, how amazing would this be? Um, uh, because I had spent enough time in economics to know that, there's nothing more important right now for uh, for humans to flourish than if we could get our hands on a secure money or a sound money that's hard to steal or inflate. Um, so I was kind of prepped to 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 appreciate it if it worked, uh, but I was still really skeptical about it. So I guess it was maybe nine months ago or so I decided that I'd do a threat model. Um, and you can see the threat model that I wrote at btcthreats.com if you're interested. Uh, but basically it's something that software security people, well, security people in general have been doing this for a long time. Um, people that, that build uh, buildings, you know, uh, nuclear power plants usually have a threat model. Um, and the idea is a systematic list of all the things that an attacker could do, all the things that could go wrong, and what we're going to do, what safeguards we're going to put in place to prevent it. Um, so I did that with Bitcoin. I looked at all the ways that I, as an attacker, and, you know, a software security guy, you're always thinking adversarially, right? If I wanted to break this thing, how would I go about it? Right. Um, so I went through all the things that I would do to destroy it. And when I got done with that, I was just blown away. I couldn't think of a single thing that wasn't really well addressed uh, by the software. Um, and then I felt really dumb because uh, because I was like, ah, if I if I'd only taken the time to look into this sooner, um, you look at the price history and you're like, ah, oh, my gosh. So the the way that the timing worked out for me, you know, I do, I don't regret it in the sense that I've solved a lot of interesting problems in my career, and I was solving interesting problems when other people were working on Bitcoin. So, uh, but. Uh, but on the other hand, the way that it worked out, just the timing when I finally took the time to look into it and, uh, and realized that it was going to work, uh, I ended up buying it at the all time high. So I think I am the world's worst Bitcoin investor to date, but I'm still feeling good about it because the technology <laughs> is sound. So it'll, it'll work out in the long run. Right. Right. I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's interesting. So I guess, um, so I guess, so software security, um, I guess so, so since you mentioned it, we'll talk a little bit about the, uh, the Bitcoin threat model, um, that, that, that she put out, which I, I read through and I was, I was really appreciative of, I guess the way that it was laid out. It was a pretty quick read, but it got the point across. Um, so I guess, um, uh, in, in your opinion, uh, you, there, I mean, there really aren't any, any, any threats, but for, from your assessment, uh, what are the most likely threats to the adoption of Bitcoin as cash? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, the, the conclusion of the threat model is I don't see anything that's going to have a significant impact on the adoption, which is, a, it's a, it's an incredible statement, I know, because there's so much stuff going on. There's altcoins and there's the potential of government regulation and all those sort of things. But if you look at the threat model and you think of something that I haven't thought of, let me know and I'll add it. And when I look at all of those things and all of the reasons that I don't think that they're that big of a deal, um, I don't. I don't walk away with anything on my list where I can say I'm really particularly worried about that. That said, I think there's a couple threats that are more interesting. Um, one is uh, building an insecure sidechain. Um, there's a couple projects right now, and uh, there's a couple people right now that are really pushing the idea of a drive chain, which is uh, the best way to think of this is just like a 
a way to store Bitcoin in a separate network. Um, and that separate network sort of holds the Bitcoin for you. Um, and if that network gets destroyed or hacked, all the Bitcoin in that network could be stolen, but it couldn't affect Bitcoin originally. And the nice concept here is that you can build something that you could iterate on and you could move faster and you could break things and you you wouldn't have to worry about breaking the original network. You would right. only, you know, the downside is that if it is insecure and there's a lot of money there, a lot of Bitcoin can be stolen. So we could have sort of a Mt. Gox scenario. And even more than that, we could have a Mt. Gox scenario that some people know is coming, um, which would allow them to short and do market manipulation and cause other damage. So I think that's a real possibility. The The idea of drive chains is, has a major security flaw in it. The folks that have come up with it um, are pushing it really aggressively, even though I've taken the time and other people have taken time, including the guy that actually came up with the original idea, uh, Matt Corallo, has taken the time to explain he abandoned the idea because it has critical security flaws. Uh, but in spite of that, it's being pushed pretty aggressively. So if, I mean, it, it hasn't been built yet and maybe it won't be, but, um, but there are people that are spending money to get it built. And if that ever happens, I think we could, you know, we could see it would, it would be a hit, right? It's not gonna, it's not gonna prevent adoption of Bitcoin, but it's one of those things that could slow it down a little bit, but it would be, it would be marginal. Uh, it'd, it'd be such a, on one hand, it's something that I worry about as a security person. On the other hand, even if it happened, I don't think that we would be able to say for sure when it was over if it slowed or accelerated adoption of Bitcoin. Uh, because like with a lot of things related to Bitcoin, you know, bad news is still news, right? So if something terrible happened and we were all over the press, uh, more people might be interested in Bitcoin than were before. And that, you know, sort of the bad news could even outweigh the outweigh the damage. So, uh, but that's probably the nastiest thing that I see on the horizon. Um, but all in all, uh, even, you know, even with stuff like that it just it looks shockingly sound yeah yeah very interesting very interesting i know that's that's been kind of a a, a big talk uh is, is you know these these side chains um and i, I do like the fact I, I guess one of my i guess a little background for me or a little background on me um with with bitcoin i i, I, f- I first bought it in 2015 and with the sole intention of buying silver with that's would be a cool experiment can i buy silver with bitcoin and it was a major pain to buy it because I, you know, looked at the white paper and I realized, you know, I, I probably, you know, it's probably a bad idea to, you know, attach a driver's license and, uh, you know, uh, uh, and a social security number and all this stuff to it. So I was looking for places where I could buy it without providing any personal identifiable information. And it was a pain in the ass. It left a really bad taste in my mouth. Uh, but I was able to pull it off uh, using uh, Verawalks, uh, Virtual World Exchange, where, yes, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's basically a dig- like a digital gaming currency website. So, yeah, I, you know, trade my, my, uh, my U.S. dollars for, uh, I guess, something like linden dollars uh and then i convert it into uh um you know pay i convert it into cash or, or or bitcoin or whatever so it's it's one of those one of those sites but it really really it was a pain back then and i guess with the onslaught of altcoins you know claiming to solve all of all of uh, you know bitcoin's air quotes issues um i i really wasn't knowledgeable on the technology at all so i uh, when the when the scaling debate came around with um with the you know bitcoin and bitcoin cash fork i i don't know i guess i kind of uh i was kind of frustrated that okay uh you know if bitcoin needs to scale then scale it i mean why is why is there why why is there such such a big debate if it needs to happen why doesn't it just happen and i realized later on thanks to andreas antonopoulos that the the inability to change bitcoin is not a flaw it's a feature 
um, it's extremely hard, if not damn near impossible, for for one uh, for for one, I guess, uh, section of the community to actually take over the protocol and implement changes. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I did look into other altcoins at that time who were, you know, supposedly solving, you know, issues that Bitcoin had. But um, I, I guess the, the major one was, was, the, was, the, uh, was the scaling. So I guess with these solutions that have been proposed so far, are there any scaling solutions that, that you see as, uh, you know, not a, a massive security threat? Yeah, yeah. I think um, that that whole issue, I mean, I kind of got in uh, at the tail end of that. But as I've gone back and looked at it, it's really kind of fascinating. This whole this whole space is fascinating because um, it it, it sort of reminds me of like um, and this may may piss off some of your listeners, but like the vaccination debate. Right. Like Every, everybody has an opinion. It doesn't matter if they're an epidemiologist or not. It doesn't matter if they've read any of the literature or if they can even tell you why bloodletting, why we finally figured out that bloodletting was a bad idea, right? And that's sort of like, if you if you don't know how we figured out that bloodletting was a bad idea and you can't apply that, that to a, a lot of stuff, you're not even like a first year med student, right? Like you don't get to have an opinion on that topic. Um, even though, you know, I, I get it, like the government has monopolized medicine and we really don't have any experts that we can look to. So, uh, you know, I, I am sympathetic with it. Um, but, uh, but the scaling debate was sort of like that, right? You have like, you have like these really weird people that are saying, yeah, we should be able to scale Bitcoin, like really strange characters. Like if, if you were like a Silicon Valley angel investor and you showed up at Bitcoin and you saw like, you know, these, these Bitcoin cash guys like Calvin Air and Roger Very, you'd just be like, where am I? Uh, <laughs> and, and I'm not saying that all those guys in Silicon Valley are brilliant, but Man, I mean, it, it's like showing up into the middle of a trailer park. It's very disorienting for people that haven't lived like that. Um, and that's how that's how like just cheesy and weird that whole thing is. And then you have a lot of people in the middle that are trying to decide, like, should we be able to raise the block size or not? And I just want to be like, dude, you didn't even take like my computer science 101 class like 10 years ago. I'm not going to try to help you understand this <laughs> is my, my initial thing. But then, you know, just like vaccinations, it comes down to, well, you got to make a decision for your life. Right. And ultimately if you don't choose the right thing, you're going to suffer for it. And I'm probably going to suffer for it too. Uh, and that, that's part of the reason that, you know, looking back at that history, I'm, I'm more willing to put a lot of time into trying to do Bitcoin education. Um, but the block size debate thing, it really is a question of, uh, how, how big can you make that? How many transactions can you do in a short period of time without choking up the network? And if you choke up the network, you destroy the security. So, that's that's a really important question to ask. And the answer can't be, well, let's just double it. Because when you're trying to build something like a global currency, you need to support millions of transactions per second, right? If if you walked into Facebook and you said, hey, I've got this really great idea, guys. Um, you know, I know that we're growing at uh, 10 times our user count per day. And I just realized that if we change this critical freaking security parameter, we might be able to double the number of users we can support. 
<laughs> just look yeah. at you like you're a madman. And that is exactly what that whole debate was about. Let's see if we can go from supporting half a McDonald's franchise per day to supporting two McDonald's franchises per day by screwing with a parameter that if we get it wrong, will completely destroy the network um, and could uh, could be our only chance, right? We don't know if we can build another network like this uh, without the the vested interests and uh, that, that don't want it to happen, being able to prevent it. Right. We, right. we think that we can, but we're not sure. So let's take all of this risk and uncertainty, like from a security professional or really just any technology professionals perspective, we were all just like, what in the heck are you guys doing over here? This is a really, this is a, you know, this is a very strange carnival that's, that's being run. But fortunately it worked out. Um, and I can't take credit for helping in any way. Cause I really wasn't here until it was basically resolved. Um, but yeah, so so that's obviously not the solution, right? Um, so what are some solutions that have been proposed? I think side chains uh, have a lot of potential. Uh, I'm not excited about, I'm not super excited about any one right now. We basically have two designs um, and a hybrid that is really just sort of trying to obscure the fact that they're they're doing one of the designs. So you can either do, and, and there may be more stuff, right? Like stuff in Bitcoin's moving really fast. But my current understanding is that you can either do a federated side chain um, or you can do a merge mine side chain. And a merge mine side chain is what I called an insecure side chain design earlier because it would uh, not be good. Um, and then a federated side chain is basically what uh, the guys at Blockstream are doing. They're calling it liquid. And it's essentially... Uh, a network of exchanges is the best way to think of it. So instead of like having Coinbase, you might have a network uh, that includes Coinbase and maybe a dozen other companies. And two thirds of those companies have to approve a transaction in order for it to be processed. Um, that's interesting. I mean, at the end of the day, if two thirds of the companies involved are crooked, your money is toast. Uh, yeah, and I'm, I'm not I'm not a big fan of Coinbase either. So, uh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, so, I mean, I'm kind of excited about it, but it's not, you know, it's it, it's it's a trade-off, right? Um, so, if uh, if something like Liquid uh, exists, then it, there's some applications that are really obvious for it, right? Like exchanges that are settling with each other, um, or a, a maybe a simpler way to say this is banks. Uh, if we have these Bitcoin banks like Coinbase which we do, um, allowing those Bitcoin banks to exchange Bitcoin with each other really rapidly um, with, you know, stuff that's more experimental and we don't want to have on Bitcoin right now, like confidential transactions. Um, that's all good, right? There's certain applications where it's just no question that it's a good thing, even though I'm not putting my Bitcoin on it. Um, there, there, there are applications where that makes a lot of sense. But the real exciting thing that's going on right now is Lightning. Um, and Lightning uh, has... You know, because there's so much money involved, um, and you know, PR firms and and shill accounts and all kinds of weirdness, um, Lightning has sort of gotten a bad rap in some sectors of the the Bitcoin community. Um, but from like a competent technologist perspective, all we're talking about here is cleverly delayed Bitcoin transactions. So if I send you some money. Um, on Bitcoin that can take, you know, an hour. But if we work out a way where I can send you incremental amounts of Bitcoin that doesn't have to hit the Bitcoin chain because it's just delayed and then we can overwrite those transactions, right? So like I can give you a hundred bucks 
And then you essentially can give me that hundred bucks back when I give you another, when I give you 110 bucks to give you 10 more. And then if you wanted to give me 20 bucks, you would, uh, I would basically, you know, give you 90 bucks and you would destroy the, the $110 that, that is, uh, uh, in the transaction that's, uh, that you could put on Bitcoin. Right. So they've been called IOUs, which I think is kind of a, it's a decent shortcut, but then it's, you know, it's vilified to the point where people are super confused because at the end of the day, these are all Bitcoin transactions that if anybody starts doing anything funny, just get put on the blockchain. But as long as you and I are playing nice, we can do thousands of transactions per second together that are real Bitcoin transactions that don't hit the Bitcoin network. Um, and that's just really, really interesting and exciting. Um, and I think that that, you know, that does get us to millions of transactions per second. And we already see a lot of lightning transactions happening right now. So it's not like theoretical um, the way merge mine sidechains are, it's actually up and running. And I think the reason for that is that it was promising, right? Like you have a lot of really, really smart and competent people working in this space and a design was discovered called lightning and it looked really good. And so it got built within a, a really pretty impressive period of time. Um, which is another challenge with non-technical people is, uh, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure brain surgeons are always frustrated. Like, Oh yeah, you just pop open the head and scoop out the tumor, right? That's not how this <laughs> stuff works. This right. stuff is really hard and it takes time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So I guess, uh, I, I mean, I've, I've read some stuff on lightning, but um, I'm not a technologist by any means. I'm just on the outside trying to understand this because I, I, I think it's, uh, I think it's, you know, really, 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 par- really powerful tools in pursuance of self-liberation and also, you know, helping to, 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 to free others as well. So basically, uh, from your explanation of kind of, uh, kind of IOUs, um, if I wanted to send you money, um, you would get it, but it wouldn't actually be on the Bitcoin. Uh, it wouldn't actually. Uh, it would be. It would just be an off-chain transaction. And then how would how would it how would these transactions settle onto uh, onto the network? Would it be uh, something on the lines of where um, you could have a whole slew of transactions off-chain, and then they would get sent as a as a you know sent in bulk over to the Bitcoin blockchain for confirmation? Um, I mean, how how does this kind of work? Yeah, basically the way that it works is um, if you and I want to send each other money, um, and actually it's a network too. So I'll, I'll, I'll explain it at a high level if it's just you and me, and then I'll explain how it would work if, if there was another person involved. So sure. if you and I are sending each other money, I can create a Bitcoin transaction. I can sign it with my private keys, right? Like the private password that I have that nobody else is supposed to see. And that's a valid Bitcoin transaction. So let's say I send it to you and it's $10. Well, you could at any time take that $10 and you could, you could broadcast it to the Bitcoin network. So you can kind of think of this as like maybe a a draft email, right? It's an email that's written. I've digitally signed it or provided my password or done whatever. And all anybody has to do is drop it on the network and it goes. Uh, But you take that and you know that you can drop it on the network at any time and nobody can stop you from doing it. And you treat that as if it's $10, right? Because it's worth 10 bucks. Cause if you want to turn it into 10 bucks worth of Bitcoin, you just drop it on the network. Um, but instead of dropping it on the network, you hold on to it. And then if you need to send me money, you've got $10, uh, that, that I've sent you, um, and you need to send me money. You could, let's say you needed to send me three bucks. You could create a new transaction for $7 from me to you. And that would invalidate the first transaction. And so if you sign it and I sign it, we, we do the we do the dance that we need to do for that transaction to be valid. It also invalidates the the previous transaction, right? right. And so now I've only paid you seven 
thousand dollars. Um, really, what's happened is I paid you ten, and then you paid me three. But this can go back and forth, you know, thousands of times a second. And nobody. One of the really nice things about it is, from a privacy standpoint, nobody knows that this is happening except for you and me. Um, so all of our all of our exchanges are not happening on the public visible blockchain as, as transactions. Now, what's cool is because it's a network, if you and I can do this, well, what if we have Bob and he's on the other side of you and I need to send money to Bob? Well, you and I can do this little thing with updating transactions that never go on the network so that you know that you have money from me and then you can send money to Bob um, and maybe charge a really small fee, like, you know, five Satoshis in between in order to send money to Bob. And even that doesn't have to go to the Bitcoin network. So you can, you can chain a bunch of people together or a bunch of lightning nodes together, um, to create this internet of money sort of scenario where all of, all we're doing is we're updating Bitcoin transactions and invalidating previous Bitcoin transactions, but we can actually move incredible amounts of value. And the really nice thing thing is that it's instant confirmation. If I hand you something and it's already pre-signed and it's ready to go, and you know that if you want, you can put it on the Bitcoin network and it will be confirmed, then you've got something, uh, you've got something that actually represents that money as soon as those bits arrive in your, in your computer um, or in your smartphone right. or whatever. So that's, that's amazing. I mean, it's amazing on privacy. It's amazing on speed. Um, and it, it, you know, obviously it's really, really good for scalability. Um, so yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's a really, it's a really incredible system. And, you know, at this point we can definitely say it's not theoretical. I don't know how many, uh, how many millions of dollars are on the lightning network right now and are being pushed around, but it's, it's not small, uh, which is pretty impressive. Like if you look at the amount of Bitcoin and the number of transactions that, are happening or at least the amount of value that's being pushed around. Um, and you consider that there's not even an iOS app for the iPhone yet. Like right. that's how early we are with this stuff. Um, but you know, it's, it's far further than a, a theoretical white paper at this point. Um, and, uh, yeah, from a security standpoint, it looks, it looks pretty good. That doesn't mean there's not going to be like issues around the edges and there's not going to be somebody that loses money here and there because of the, some design flaw, um, or some implementation flaw, I should say. But there's not uh, there's not like major design flaws. It's not like just you know increasing the block size to a terabyte or thirty megabytes or something like that, where we know that it has really bad side effects. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. And, and I think something, and I, I have to remind myself this because back in 2016, uh, did an episode on uh, actually kind of uh, did an episode uh, here on Liberty Tech Radio on Jim Bell's you know white or Jim Jim Bell's you know set of uh, articles on assassination uh, pol- politics. I was like, "What the hell, man! Like, we've got we've got blockchains, we've got Bitcoin. Like, why isn't this a thing yet?" And uh, I guess it's uh, it's important to realize that this stuff doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of work uh, and uh, a lot of effort, and especially if it's going to be something that's marketed to a lot of people, it has to be secure. So uh, these things uh, definitely don't happen overnight. But I guess the the other thing I was uh, what what you're talking about with lightning um, leads to my next point, or I guess the the next uh, point of discussion, and that. Um, that was my major. That was my major issue with Bitcoin for a long time was the fact that uh, you know it was, uh, it was kind of pseudonymous, right? Uh, I mean, everything is put on a public ledger, and uh, you know how much privacy really is there when you know the NSA's crypt analysts can just go in there and uh, you know track back transactions and, and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so, in all honesty, I'll be completely honest with you here, JW. You know, I'm ready for the, I'm ready I'm ready for you to tell me how wrong I am because I heard your interview with uh, with uh, with Fluffy Pony, but that's why like for the longest time, Monero was my favorite cryptocurrency 
because privacy is absolutely crucial, especially if, uh, if uh, just especially even in the realm of, uh, of, of money. So that's positive to hear about lightning. And plus, on top of that, uh, if you just practice good security culture with Bitcoin, stay off the major exchanges, the major centralized exchanges that will report your earnings to the IRS. And if you uh, use other tools, I think there's uh, actually a privacy wallet out now that um, someone uh, sent me a link to, but I don't remember what it's what it's called. But um, apparently, you know, the, the, the privacy is it's getting there on Bitcoin, but it's it's been a little while. So I'm really happy to hear about the, the you know, the, the privacy implications of, of lightning and uh, and all of that, because it seems like it, it seems like a long time coming at least in my opinion yeah no i mean it is a long time coming think about what it's like to be tim may or nick zabo or any of these guys that have been you know waiting for 30 years for it to come but um but it just depends you know it's like a lot of things in the real world uh in fantasy land everything happens fast and is amazing in the real world depending on how you're looking at it it's either been really fast or really slow like for me i get to enjoy it and be like wow this, this is incredible because I've only been here like nine months and, uh, you know, I've only been in Austrian, uh, for maybe 10 years. And so the pace feels really, really good. Um, and I've also done software startups and I've just had the crap kicked out of me time and time again, uh, on really hard problems in the technology space and realized a lot of times the really hard problem I'm working on has been being worked on for 40 years. Like from the very beginning of computer science, some of this stuff has been being worked on. Um, I mean, as an example, my contacts in my phone are a disaster, right? Like this is, this should be really, really easy, but all of the different services that I've used, you know, I have like 6,000 contacts, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. So I'm always, you know, trying to, trying to make connections with other successful people that I can help out and that can help me out. And, uh, it's, it's a complete nightmare. Like my, my contacts are totally disorganized. Now you would think at this point in 2018, I could go out to some web application. They could download the contacts from my phone. They could, uh, they could figure out the duplicates, clean all that stuff up and give it back to me because, you know, this is this is a very basic problem of computer science that goes back decades. And right now I can't. Right? Right. <laughs> like that's the reality of it. So a lot of these problems, they look easy until you start digging into them. Um, I mean, I'll never f- forget the first time I tried to figure out what time is this thing going to happen? And then you realize, oh my gosh, time is a nightmare. Like the way that we keep track of time goes back to the Babylonians. We have like all these weird things that happen every year uh, at the end of the year. Like you start figuring out time zones. And I mean, if you want to, if you want to, that's a good example of something that looks really, really problem or really simple to a layman. But then after you, you know, dig into it and you can find a YouTube video, uh, if you just search for like computer, computer time problem, and it'll just blow your mind that it is such a hard problem to know what time it is right now that we don't even know how to do that very effectively. And it screws us up in our applications on a regular basis. That's the world as it actually is. It's freaking, freaking hard. So, when we're talking about some like privacy and Monero and the pace of innovation on Bitcoin, I think uh, hardened professionals that have been kicked around are going to look at it from that perspective, that that stuff is really, really difficult and that we shouldn't really even have Bitcoin right now. Like it's way too good to be true. <laughs> it works way too good for for what it is. It has way too much promise. Um, we're probably missing something and this whole thing is going to blow up. Like that's that's the perspective that you should have if you're a, if you're a hardened professional. Um, but something like Monero just, you know, it doesn't make sense because they it's. It, 
it's sort of like um, it's forgetting what the context is, right? Like the goal here is not to create private transactions. The goal, the goal is to create a government hard money that prevents governments from being able to take our money and inflate it or easily steal it from us. Um, privacy is part of that. But if all we have is privacy and we have like no transactions that we can process or all we have is privacy and we have no ability to prevent somebody from spinning up some miners and and 51% attacking the network uh, cost effectively, then, you know, it's like a, a one-legged stool. Like anybody can build a really good one-legged stool, but it's useless. If, <laughs> if you're trying to build money, you got to build money. And part of that is privacy, but part of it is being able to scale um, and, uh, and a big part of it is security, right? Like if it's not secure, then what's the point? And, uh, that's the category that Monero falls into. It's, it's just not secure, uh, because they've, they've sacrificed other stuff. Um, that said, privacy on Bitcoin isn't like what we would like it to be. Um, but it's okay if it's not perfect. Like how good does it need to be in order to accomplish the mission, the mission of, uh, creating a secure money? Um, uh, because you know, the NSA is funded, right? If the NSA wasn't funded, then we wouldn't have to be quite as worried about privacy. Um, so it just needs to be good enough to where all of us can use it and we can use it to defend the federal government. Um, at least, you know, I think probably, uh, critically, uh, but at least enough to where they can't, uh, they can't fund unpopular projects like, you know, spying on civilians at scale, um, which is really, really expensive. And I think if it wasn't for the fed, they wouldn't exist. So we just need it to be that secure. Um, we're going to get, in my opinion, most of our privacy and most of our freedom because the people that would otherwise be attacking us just don't bother. Um, but, uh, but that said, I wish privacy was a little bit better on Bitcoin. I think lightning gets us there. Um, you know, confidential transactions, a lot of people are frustrated with. Um, and this is a good example of even like as hardened as I am and expecting things to be hard. There was a time maybe four or five months ago. I was like, why don't we have confidential transactions on Bitcoin yet? Like it exists, it's on liquid. Um, you know, it's been pretty thoroughly tested. What's the timeline here? Mm-hmm. Um, and when I when I talked to a couple smart people, I got even more assured than I had than I would have been if they had said we're going to do it next month. They said, "Look, we get it. It's valuable, but it has downsides, right?" And it, that's that's when somebody like me shuts up and listens. Um, and the downside of doing something that's totally confidential is that if there was a flaw found in Bitcoin that allowed you to inflate the monetary the the money supply, um, which you know we. We don't think that it's there, but this stuff is really, really important. So we want to have like three or four layers of checks, right? Sure. Um, so if that was ever discovered and somebody could silently inflate the money supply, we would be totally screwed. As Bitcoin stands right now, you always see the amounts of every transaction and the the open balance on every UTXO. So I can tell you down to the Satoshi exactly how many Bitcoin exist. And I can tell you for sure that there hasn't been a flaw discovered that allows people to create more than the cap. That might not be worth giving up. Even just that confidence that it's not possible is so valuable that it might not be worth hiding the transaction amounts. Um, and so, I mean, from my perspective, I was more reassured because it it tells me that there's really, really smart people that are a couple steps ahead of me. Um, and they're really thinking this stuff through in a, in a painstaking way. Um, and you know what, we're going to, we're going to do interesting stuff. I think the wallet that you were talking about is the Wasabi wallet. Yes, that, yeah, uh, this, that's it. Yep. 
yeah, no, Para is a really brilliant guy and he's constantly thinking about these problems and trying to push things forward. Um, and so like something like just really uh, a good mixing system, right? Where all of my transactions go into a big bucket and then go out. Um, that doesn't have any real downsides from a monetary policy uh, perspective. It could get us a lot further. Uh, but those are the sort of really difficult trade-offs that are happening in Bitcoin. The reason that you don't see that stuff happening in the altcoin space is that they're not really trying there. All they're trying to do is scavenge together enough nonsense to be able to get some dumb money. They're not actually trying to create a solution to, uh, uh, to secure and sound money. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, very good. So, so I guess, um, I guess I want to get your thoughts on, on this other thing too. And what really brought me around, like I said, the, the, the main issue that I had with, with Bitcoin was, you know, the, the, everything being public and the ability for the state to, uh, you know, use crypt, crypt analysis to, you know, figure out, you know, who sent what, what wallets belong to whom and what addresses belong to whom and, and all that sort of stuff. That was until I started watching um, Andreas Antonopoulos' presentations um, on YouTube. And I'll tell you what, I, I mean, I didn't understand this. I Honestly, up until probably the end of last year, I did not understand the significance of Bitcoin. Um, even if it, you know, even as you said, you know, even if, you know, those, even though, even though it's not as private as we'd like it to be, it is a really incredible thing. Right. Um, and that was, you know, kind of what uh, Andre, Andreas explained to me. That's it's not blockchain. It's Bitcoin um, without without all of these other mechanisms, proof of work and decentralization and, the, and consensus. Um, you know, blockchain is just kind of this useless term most often used now to, you know, get get funding for, for various projects. So. I guess, you know, Andreas really brought me around to understanding the importance of Bitcoin. And uh, I, I'd, li- I'd like to get your thoughts on, uh, on, on him. And I guess his, yeah, his, his, no. his impact on, you know, I guess, uh, adoption of Bitcoin. Yeah, I think he's a he's a huge asset for Bitcoin. I think he's done. Um, he, I mean, he's he's obviously a really brilliant speaker, and he's got a pretty good grasp of what's going on most of the time, and uh, does a really good job communicating that. And I think one of the things that I really appreciate him, or that I really appreciate about him, is that he's uh, he's a very like. Uh, I don't want, I want to say emotional, uh, speaker, but he communicates sort of passion to people that gets them motivated enough to do the work of actually looking into whether this thing's going to work. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely a, a big fan of his. Um, I think, you know, I, I know that like all, all humans, you know, he's a mixed bag, right? There's been some, some security things that maybe he didn't call right away or didn't call the best. Um, and you know, he gets a lot of flack for writing the Ethereum book, you know, I, from me also, right? Like, <laughs> even though I'm a fan, I will definitely make fun of him for that. You know, if we were friends, I would, I would kick him in the nuts over that book probably annually for the rest of his life. Um, but he's still a really good guy. And I think overall has been a, a massive help for Bitcoin adoption. Yeah, yeah, I, I certainly agree. I certainly agree. And it, it goes beyond just, uh, I guess, educating people on Bitcoin. I mean, he's done or educating, you know, I guess, uh, amateurs or noobs like me on Bitcoin, but he's also done some really interesting, um, I guess, kind of more like the more geared towards, you know, programmers and developers, which I find really, really valuable as I'm trying to, uh, you know, understand uh, uh, all of this technology. So I guess uh, a little t- tongue in sh- So, so we, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin and you've kind of, you know, slid, slid some things in there with, with Monero and, and, and such. But I guess, um, and it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek question. Now, what's your favorite altcoin? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's kind of like saying, uh, 
what's your favorite fraud, right? What's your favorite scam that is uh, basically designed to part people with their money and slow the abolition of human slavery? Mm. Ah, that's a really tough one. Uh, you know what? I'm going to go with, I'm going to go with Litecoin because it's, it, it brings me the most, um, it's the most, you know what? Actually, I have a better answer for that. I, I have a coin that I created um, in order to make fun of all of this called number two coin. <laughs> and uh, and number two coin is exactly like Litecoin. It's exactly like Bitcoin Cash. The only difference with number two coin is I didn't intentionally introduce any security flaws into it. So I've got a video where I show you my patented development process for, uh, um, for creating number two coin which is basically just copy Bitcoin. Um, but that, that's my favorite altcoin. Um, even though it's totally <laughs> worthless, it's honest about it. Sure, sure. So, so I guess, uh, um, so, so you kind of, you kind of uh, elaborated to it, or I guess kind of, uh, you know, talked about it there. But uh, I mean, uh, so, so with, with all the altcoins out there, I know there's, uh, there's, uh, there's a lot of, uh, you know, really, really awful projects and such. Um, but I guess, um, uh, like, and you mentioned Monero. I mean, that would be, in my opinion, um, you know, like the the highest the highest use case altcoin because there's privacy there. Um, so you don't really see anything in any of the any anything in any of these altcoins, any of these projects and these developments that um, you know could that could be beneficial, or I guess um, asked another way that that could be beneficial and applied to Bitcoin as well. Yeah, no, that's a great question because a lot of people think that competition is good, and they're right about that, of course. Um, and they think, well, if you have all these different competing projects, um, it's more important that there's the ecosystem as a whole, and there's going to be like good, valuable things, and we're, you know, open source software is going to result in those things popping around and you know finding good footing. That would be great if that's what was happening. Um, and a lot of us that are pro Bitcoin would like to see that happen, right? Um, because there there are. Like open source software is very collaborative because it's open source. Like if if there were two database systems that were trying to build, uh, you know, an email server um, and they were coding away, they would look at each other's stuff and they might get ideas from each other and they would actually just copy whole sections of code potentially, right? Because that's the whole idea is you can, you know, it's it's free. It's it's uh, the source code's available. Take it, leave it, do what you want, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, maybe those two projects would merge or maybe they would split into 15 other projects because 15 of the contributors, once you get to, you know, 1,200 contributors on a project, maybe there's enough, um, there's enough people with slightly different ideas to where they fork the project and they go work on their own thing and then eventually they bring those ideas back home, right? Um, uh, or, or you just end up with 15 different database servers that have different strengths and weaknesses and, you know, that's all good. That's kind of how people think uh, if they have any idea of open source software, that's what they think is happening in this space. But it's just not. Um, and it's not because uh, basically you have competent people and you have incompetent people in this space. And because money is sort of like the internet protocol, like TCP IP or Ethernet or something like that, it's really only valuable if it's one thing, right? If you've studied Austrian economics, um, even Hayek talks about money as being sort of this information network, right? Um, well, information networks are only valuable if everybody speaks the same language uh, so we can all talk to each other. Um, so money, you know, whether you want to look at it as a unit of account or however it helps you to get to this point, um, if you have a good understanding of what money is, you understand it's more valuable if everybody uses the same money. And actually, it's not even money unless everybody actually uses the same money. Um, 
so because of that, you have people that are, are smart and they're competent and they're working on Bitcoin. And then you have people that are just really scammers, frankly, they're, they're, some of them actually have pretty prestigious, you know, academic backgrounds, but there's a lot of money to be made. If I can create this competing protocol, even if I know because I'm competent that it'll never beat the other protocol and that protocol development is always a winner take all game. Um, if I, if I build this competing protocol, I can get a bunch of people to give me their money. Um, and I think that it's so tempting in this space. Uh, I don't think anything like it has ever happened before in the open source software world, um, that there's just a lot of incentives to, to build garbage and then shill it. Um, and, uh, one of the ways that you can know that this is happening is just ask yourself or find somebody else that, that can look through and kind of verify this stuff. How many ideas from other projects like Monero have made their way to Bitcoin and how many, uh, uh, altcoins like Monero have taken ideas from Bitcoin. And the answer in this weird ecosystem of scammers and actual competent, uh, people that are trying to make the world a better place is that to date, there's never been one thing that came from any altcoin project that made its way into Bitcoin, not once, uh, which is really weird unless all these guys are scammers um, or unless, all, I mean, either either all these guys are scammers or the Bitcoin team is really backed by the Bilderberg group and they're so stubborn. Like every, and it's open source, so it doesn't even make sense. But <laughs> for some reason, everybody that has an interest in Bitcoin is just really stubborn and won't take good ideas from anybody else, including the people that just showed up yesterday, of which there's probably dozens. Um, and on the other hand, you know, the, these uh, these altcoin projects. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I struggle to come up with any other uh, way to think it through because it's so obvious when there's nothing good coming from altcoins into Bitcoin. And when you look at any of these projects, like from – from my perspective as a security professional, they're laughable on the surface, right? Like, no, that's not going to work. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example just to beat up on Monero a little bit more. Um, <laughs> or, or Litecoin, actually. A lot of these uh, – in fact, if you know this one thing, you can probably eliminate 80 80- – percent of all the altcoins out there. Um, so what you have to understand about the security model behind these cryptocurrencies is that essentially it's destroying or using up valuable resources in order to prove that you've done a bunch of work to confirm a transaction. So electricity, right? Like I'm going to, as a, as a miner, I'm going to spend, you know, $5,000 of electricity right now to, uh, and I'm going to do it in a way that's provable and is easily verifiable to say these are the transactions that I've seen and they're all legitimate, right? Um, which means if I've spent $5,000 on that, I have a lot of skin in the game. I don't want the whole network to reject my work because if they do, um, then I'm out that 5,000 bucks and I don't get a reward, right? Right. In order to make that work though, you have to burn that electricity as efficiently as human humanly possible. Because if, let's say that I, I burned $5,000 of electricity, um, but I don't know, I just used an old crappy computer. Uh, then what that means is that the amount of work that I did, like the proof that I have that I burnt that 5,000 bucks is something that can be produced on a really fast, you know, efficient computer for maybe 500 bucks. 
And that would mean that essentially, you know, uh, as far as anybody being able to verify, I've only actually spent 500 bucks worth of resources, even though I spent 5,000 cause I did it inefficiently. The only thing that I can actually prove is $500 worth of burnt electricity. Um, and so what you need the network to be able to do is burn electricity, burn that resource as efficiently as humanly possible. Um, because otherwise you can't prove it, right? Um, mm-hmm. you, there, there's always the possibility that I've gotten a hold of some alien technology and that when I tell you I'd burned $5,000 of electricity, I've really only burned $500. But if I'm working at the height of human capability, which is somewhere around 10 nanometer ASICs, uh, then you can be sure that when I show you evidence that I spent $5,000, that I actually spent $5,000. Um, Monero and all these other guys uh, knowing that people don't get that, especially new people in the space that are they're going to be suckered, uh, said, let's just throw that security concept away and let's go with ASIC resistant uh, mining algorithms, which basically, I mean, it's it's the most retarded thing in the world. It's basically the idea that we're going to create an algorithm that um, that can't be run on efficient hardware which is impossible because eventually somebody will take the time to make efficient hardware. But in the meantime, a lot of people will use their crappy old computers. Um, and that's great for marketing, right? If somebody thinks that they've made five bucks, even if they spent $5 in electricity to do it, you've got them hooked. It's good for marketing. Um, so you've got that engine rolling. Um, but it's terrible for security. Uh, but if you're, if you're trying to screw people over, it's, it's a really good idea to go with that route. So, just knowing that one thing about the security model of these cryptocurrencies, you can eliminate Monero, you can eliminate Litecoin, and uh, number two coin is still in the running, but you can eliminate that because I told you it's stupid. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, most of them, uh, Grin, right? Grin's not even out yet. You can eliminate that one already. It's a terrible idea. Um, so, yeah, it, it's it's kind of, at times it's frustrating to be even slightly competent in this space, especially when you feel like the, the stakes are as high as, you know, abolition or, you know, uh, spending our retirement years under a state. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's what we're doing. <laughs> hey, fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. I guess, uh, interestingly said, yeah, I hadn't thought about a, a couple of those things before. Uh, definitely, definitely had not, but, um, we're about an hour through, so I guess let's change gears a, a little bit, uh, if that's all right, unless you have any other, I guess, uh, final thoughts on Bitcoin or, or altcoins. No, no, not at all. That was that was fun, uh, but glad to move on to fresh <laughs> pastures. Yes, yes, and you know something. <laughs> you know, I guess a more positive subject now. Uh, so you you put out a video uh, titled "Code Illiteracy is Stupid," and this is like that was I I watched, that was one of the first ones I watched because this is something that's been on my mind. Reason being, uh, for the past few years, I'd been you know like my biggest regret had, had been not learning to code and program when I was you know like seventeen or eighteen or nineteen or, or whatever. And, uh, you know, my brother and I have talked about this before, too, and we, we both kind of, yeah, we, we both regret it. Uh, you know, like it's, it's too late now. Like, what, what, what are we going to do about it? But uh, in your video, you, you seem to have a different opinion there. Um, that's, uh, you, know, you know, someone in their mid-20s or hell, even, you know, before the age of 40, um, that, uh, you know, they should, uh, there, there's, no, there's really no reason for them to not learn how to code and program. So um, I guess, uh, would, you, would you speak to that? So why, why should everyone learn how to code? 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. I'm I'm glad we're talking. I think uh, I think it can help you with your career planning a little bit here, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, you know, some other people listening, and and uh, it'll help them too. Um, so I think the best way to go about thinking about this is to imagine that you're around like right after maybe the internal combustion engine was was developed um, or invented. Um, and the, the reason that I think that's analogous is that that provided a means of solving a lot of human problems that we didn't have before. Um, you know, we were, we, we basically had horses, uh, providing most of our mechanical energy if it wasn't, you know, a human back. And all of a sudden we had this machine that could just hum along, uh, maybe not yet, right. And when it was first invented, it was, it was a bit of a disaster, but, but it was obvious that, um, uh, that it was going to work, uh, to anybody that spent any time on it and can see how much improvement was being made. Um, and it was also obvious that it had just an insane number of applications, like an unreasonable number of ways that, that it could improve people's lives. So if you were back then and you were in your mid twenties, would you say, ah, I missed it. I missed the boat. Like maybe five years into the engine being invented or 10 would be like, ah, there's no point in me learning how, uh, how an engine works now. Um, even though it looks like for some reason, these freaking mechanic jobs are kicking around $200,000 a year with 10 years of experience or 15 years of experience. I still, I think I missed the boat. I don't don't think I'm going to learn how an engine works. Um, and software is like that, but even more because the number of problems that we can solve with software, um, is it, it seems to be basically unlimited, right? Like if you can think of a single job off the top of your head, I'll tell you how software is going to, if not replace it, replace 98% of what it does. You couldn't have done that with, with an internal combustion engine, right? If you were talking to a lawyer and they said, well, how is an, how is an engine going to replace my job? The answer would be, ah, it's probably not. But I can tell you right now, I wouldn't suggest anybody go to law school because I know a lot of people that are spending a lot of time writing code that's going to make that degree a lot less valuable. Um, and that goes for, for everything, you know, from truck drivers to, uh, uh, to people that work in fast food restaurants, actually, uh, to brain surgeons. Um, so it, uh, it, it's, we're, we're living through this computer revolution. It definitely has, is not something that's in the past. It's, it's absolutely in the present. And, uh, and that's why we're willing to throw a ton of money at anybody that's willing to learn this crazy, uh, magical art. Um, but it's really not it's not crazy at all. It's just applied logic. And this whole conversation, all we've done is we've referenced words to communicate ideas. It's far harder than, than programming. So there's really <laughs> no reason to, uh, to be intimidated about it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess to provide a little background, I mean, I've, I've run, I've run websites for the past four years or so. So like my HTML is on points and I've, I know, uh, not that HTML is hard every, you know, even, you know, teenage kids on MySpace had to do that to make their profiles look you know, cute and, and funny and such. So I mean, that's not, that's not a big, uh, it's not a big accomplishment, but I, I'm, I've gotten about halfway through CSS, but, um, I mean, that's, that's really good to hear. It, it doesn't, mean, go ahead. it doesn't get any harder than HTML and CSS. It really doesn't. Um, I'm sure there's some, some professionals right now that are going, Oh, what are you talking about? But it doesn't get any harder to learn it. You'll, as you know, as you get better, you'll be able to run, you know, right now you're running a a 16 minute mile. Um, but I guarantee you getting it from 16 minutes to 14 minutes, uh, is harder or as hard as getting it from 14 minutes to 12 minutes. Um, so it's, it's you're going to be able to solve harder and harder problems the more competent that you become. But that the the pain or the uh, the labor that you put in to learning how to write HTML is as bad as it ever gets. 
Um, you're going to at some point learn algorithms and those are going to be challenging, but the amount of energy and effort that you have to put in at any given moment, uh, is going to be the same. So it's just a matter of just rinse and repeat, just keep learning, keep learning, keep learning, keep building layers. No layer is really much harder than the last layer. Yeah. You're going to run into frustrations. You probably ran into frustrations with HTML where the freaking logo wasn't in the right spot or the picture (laughs) wasn't there. Um, and so you've already experienced sort of what it's like to, to apply logic problem solve. Um, and math is the exact same way, actually. I mean, the only reason that people are intimidated from, uh, learning how to program is that they're really afraid of math and they know that they're similar. Uh, they have a good intuition about that. They're actually yeah, identical. Yeah, that's, that, that's, um, that's me. Yeah. Math was, I went to government schools and yeah, I was, math was always the, I got ba- basically all A's and B's, but math was always like a D. So yeah, that's the, <laughs> yep. so that's the fear. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it it really is incredible that, uh, that the government can take something like logic and convince kids that they can't do it. Um, because if there's one thing that humans are good at, it's, it's logic and reasoning. If we're not good at that, then we can't even have a conversation. Uh, we certainly can't work through any hard problems. We can't, you know, rub two sticks together to create a fire. Uh, but somehow, you know, with, with enough dedication, they managed to put together a system that, that, that convinces people that they're unable to do it. Um, but math, uh, you know, like I was saying with HTML, math isn't hard because it's just additional layers of abstraction and you lay those layers down one at a time. So like if you throw multiplication in front of a seven year old, that's never worked on math before, uh, he'll figure it out, but he might struggle with it. But if you teach them how counting works and then you teach them how adding works and then you teach them that multiplication is just adding the same thing again and again and again, then there's no like real leap there, right? Like it's very incremental. It's very logical. It's very reasonable. Um, and, and kids are happy to, to do that. Um, of course the government schools don't do that. They make you spend time on, uh, things like clocks. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so if I was to put together a system to make you feel stupid, I could not do better. Like I, I honestly, at one point I created a bulleted list of all of the things uh, sort of like the threat model, right? Like, let me be an evil son of a gun for a minute and think of how I could destroy a kid's mind. And I made a bulleted list of all the ways that I would teach math to do that. And I am not exaggerating. Every single one of those things is perfectly checked off. Um, so just as a, for a couple examples, um, when you're first learning math, uh, you're basically learning a 10 base number system. Uh, different civilizations have used like, I think the Babylonians used an eight base number system. Um, computer code is written in a two base number system. Uh, but none of that matters, right? Like everything that you're, you're learning when you're first learning math should be a a single number system. And we use a 10 base number system. So you have zero through nine, right? Mm -hmm. Um, or another way to say it is you have one through nine. And then once you have to write 10, then you go to two digits, right? You can only do, you can only do up through nine before you have to jump to the next digit and move a number over and return back to zero. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if you want somebody to really get comfortable with that and master it, you would work in that number system and then you would teach them, you know, like I said, counting, then addition, subtraction, multiplication, division, you'd go through it systematically. What the school system does is they make you spend as much time 
as early as possible in as many different number-based systems as possible. So you're spending, you're, you're trying to learn how to multiply, but you're also trying to memorize how many feet are in a mile and how many inches are in a foot. And you're trying to figure out this weird thing where you've got this clock that counts numbers, but for some reason the damn thing goes to 12. It doesn't go to 10. It doesn't go to nine. It goes to 12. And then it does 12 again but then there's this other layer where it goes AM, PM. So it's actually 12, but it's 24. But I mean, all of these things are not ideal to put in a kid's head at the same time, right? If you wanted to maximize confusion, hit them with as many of those things as possible at the same time. And that's exactly what they do. Um, and the other thing that you should do is you should have them, uh, just for, for another quick example, you should have them do things as, in a, as repetitive a way as possible. Uh, because there's, there's, there's joy in logic and there's joy in problem solving. Our brains are hardwired to where if you solve a problem, there's actually a chemical reward. Um, you know, you get a dopamine hit, right? So you can actually become addicted to problem solving and making the world a better place. Um, so how, I mean, actually it's, it's an interesting thought experiment. How could you, how could you teach logic and problem solving, um, and avoid having any kids experience that chemical reward? It's really maniacal. It's not, it's not at all obvious how you would go about this. No, no, it's, it's certainly not. But yeah, that, that makes, I mean, that's everything I went through in government schools. And I mean, from an early age, I mean, math was just this, this thing that I, 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 I I thought I was just incapable of doing math. I thought I was, but, uh, it's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, took the wind out of my sails for a long time. And that's, that's probably the reason why back when I was 17 or 18 or around that age where, you know, coding and programming, oh, I'm not smart enough to do that. Hell no. Like, there's there's no way in hell I'm smart enough to do that. Um, so math's involved. I can't do that. So, right. So, yeah. So, I'll, I'll answer my own question. This is how you would do it. And this will probably bring back some memories, too. You would uh, teach a procedure and you wouldn't allow there to be any problem solving involved. So instead of presenting a kid with a problem like, hey, you've got uh, you've got nine eggs and you need to make three equal piles, um, or let's say you've got 10 eggs and you need to make three equal piles. Tell me how you're going to do that. That's a problem, right? Um, and you could say that that's what division is. That's the definition of the word division. And the kid would sit there and he would probably come up with three piles of three and have an egg left over. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you told him, yeah, that's the right answer, uh, he would have that, that joy, that, that reward of having solved the problem. So how can we teach you division, something like, uh, that same problem without doing that? We don't let you actually learn math. It's, it's pretty impressive. So instead, because if, if we give you a problem and you solve it, you're going to enjoy it. How do we give you a problem, uh, but not give you a problem? And the answer is we tell you a process. We tell you a procedure to follow, right? So that's procedure is you write down this number and then you write down that number there and then you draw this line and then you do this. And in the end you get this and that's your answer, right? In, in that process, you're just an idiot in a line filling out a form at the DMV. You've done no problem solving. So what they actually did in order to pull that off, this is how maniacal it is. They tell you that they're teaching you math but math is problem solving. So they don't teach you math. They just call it math. They use the same symbols. You have a a roughly similar experience in some ways because you're writing down numbers on paper, but you don't actually ever do any problem solving. So you actually never do math in public schools. It's, it's pretty evil. 
Yeah. Wow. Wow. And I, I know the, the major thing I ran into, and this, this was a major problem, and, you know, this is you know, one reason my grades were, you know, so bad in math is like, I, I didn't understand it the way that they taught it. And you have to show your work in a particular way if you don't follow the exact process they tell you to. Um, and you do it some way different, uh, you know, well, that's wrong. It's like, well, no, I came to the same answer. How is that wrong? Well, nope, you didn't, you didn't show your work in the way that I wanted you to. It's like, well, that seems a little backwards, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it just, it sucks all of the, uh, I mean, it would it would be like if somebody told you to build a bench uh, that was comfortable to sit in and you created one with a curved back and they said, no, that's that's not right. Right. It just removes all of the opportunity for creativity and joy and exploration. Figuring out how the universe works is fun. It's what we're built to do is to explore the universe. Um, And yeah, they've they've really made it uh, made it a miserable experience. And it it's it's too bad that it spills over into programming because, um, because the best way to get rid of these monsters is like we were talking about to build tools. And it's, it's going to, you're going to have a hard time coming up with any tools that you can build without the most powerful tool, uh, that we've ever come up with, which is the computer on your side. So, um, yeah, it's not hard. Uh, you just have to, it's just another, it's just another red pill. It's another layer of indoctrination that you have to peel off. And, uh, a a good way to do that is actually my project. If you go out to mathbot.com and you sign up and you just play through the levels, you're going to, you're going to feel like you're learning HTML again, right? You're going to get that same sort of experience. It's pictures instead of words just to take some of the fear off of it, but you're actually doing functional programming. Um, it's all a Scala backend, which is kind of, you know, the highest paid and most difficult programming language, uh, around right now. And, uh, yeah, uh, by the time you get done with it, you'll, you'll be a lot less fearful that you can move on to, uh, to, to other things. Um, eventually we're going to have it so that we can replace the images with, uh, with words so that you can see just by hitting a button, the switch back and forth, um, to see that you're actually writing Scala code, uh, which will, which will be really good because mostly because it will just encourage people not to be afraid because they're already doing it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, start with that. And, uh, and then you can hit me up on Twitter too. Uh, for anybody that's listening, this is the career advice that I always give, go to MathBot, play through the levels and then hit me up on Twitter and ask me what to do next. Um, uh, <laughs> but anybody that's starting from scratch right now, like if you're not making at least $50,000 a year, you can easily be making $50,000 a year. And I, I always try to go really conservative so that nobody comes back to me in five years and says, well, you know, I've got like one droopy eye and patchy hair and I'm only getting paid 48 thousand. But, um, but if you're starting from scratch right now and you work, let's say 60 hours a week, right? Let's say you're, you're a single guy and you're willing to work six, uh, six, 10 hour days for the next five years, you're definitely going to be making $50,000 a year. Like there's no doubt in my mind about it. And it'll probably be a hundred. Um, and that's because there's just so much demand for people that can solve problems like this. Um, and I mean, you wouldn't want to be you wouldn't want to be living in a world where gunpowder is invented and you're running around with a bow and arrow. Right. Don't, don't be that guy, right? Like put in the work to freaking figure out how to make gunpowder and then run around with a rifle like the rest of us. Yes, yes, exactly. And that was the, the I guess, the, the final subject of discussion for, for this evening. And that was, uh, that was MathBot. So you, you kind of laid out the, 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 the beginning of that. And, and, and the idea here, if I understand correctly, is you're, you're teaching kids how to program, or I guess teaching kids and adults, uh, programming and uh, uh, programming in math through, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, operating a little rope or uh, moving a little robot around. And uh, I guess the, the question I have, because I've I played through the probably like six or seven levels. And, um, 
I would have played through more, but unfortunately, I, I might have run into a couple of glitches, um, which which we can talk about. But um, I, I guess ha- how is, is I've heard you say that, say that a bunch of times, and then going through the levels, I don't understand how this is teaching me programming and and, and math. Like I, I don't understand it. So could you break that down for for for, for someone like me? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, totally. So when you're first learning programming, what you want to do is you want to do the simplest thing possible. Um, So a lot of times that's like creating a number or creating two numbers and then adding them together. Something really, really basic. The way that we approach it in MathBot is you write write a, a command to have the robot step forward once. Um, from there, you can you could write a function, which is just a group of commands, maybe to have the robot move forward three times. And then anytime you need the robot to move forward three times, you knew, you can use that function. Um, so let's say that you have, uh, let's say you, you create, take the bunny rabbit picture. I think there's a bunny rabbit picture and all that uh, in your options. Um, and you say, all right, anytime I need to move forward um, three spaces, I'm going to use the bunny rabbit picture. What you've actually done right there is you've written a function. That's it, man. It never gets any harder than that. So then it's just additional layers of abstraction. Now let's say that we want to write a function uh, for the robot to move forward three, turn right, move forward three, and maybe use the right hand turn symbol for that or the rocket symbol or the hook symbol or something. So then what you would do is you use that symbol of hook and you would use the 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 rabbit, um, and then the right turn, and then another rabbit. Well, now you've created layers of functions, mm-hmm. um, and it doesn't. That's all programming is. You just look at a problem. It's usually a really simple problem. You write a small function to solve that, or you look at a problem and it's a bigger problem, and you think, all right, um, what are the sort of patterns that I've used in the past? to create functions to solve this. Um, but those actual functions are always really simple. Like the, the computers are a big box of on off switches. That's, that's all that they are. There's nothing. I mean, that's part of the reason they're super reliable. Um, now there's, you know, billions or trillions of those on off switches, but all this stuff is, is, uh, pretty simple and it's layers of abstraction. Um, so, you know, you look at a pixel on your screen, it's white or it's gray. Mm -hmm. Um, if you, if you, if you wanted to, you could peel the layers back on exactly why that pixel is white or gray right now. And you're never going to find anything other than functions like I just described. Now, there's probably between uh, the light switch that's turned on, you know, or the, the the set of light switches, let's say, that's turned on that keeps that that uh that pixel gray right now. Um, there's probably hundreds or even thousands of layers like that, but each individual layer isn't very complicated. And if you really wanted to, I'm sure there's papers out there where people have done, you could just go through all of those layers. So what's, what's great about MathBot and what's great about like logic and programming, right? Like multiplication isn't hard. It's just adding something again and again, exponents aren't hard. It's actually easier than multiplication. Like three to the third, uh, is, uh, you're just taking three and you're you're multiplying it three times, right? Which is mm-hmm. just adding multiple times, which is just counting, right? Like yeah. all of this stuff is because it's all an exploration and logic, it has to be simple at every level. If you're ever working on programming or you're ever working on math and you have a moment of frustration, it's only because you have a bad teacher. Because it's not possible that it could be anything else. Your brain is built for this. 
everybody is really capable of it. You know, I mean, unless you're injured or, you know, if you're a typical uh, healthy human being, you're totally engineered to be able to do this. And so if you ever get to a point where you're like really frustrated, it's probably because you're not trying to take the next step. You're trying to jump seven steps, which uh, is another way that the public schools really like to teach math is they don't do it systematically and carefully. Everybody from, uh, let's see, how far back can I go? Uh, Alexander the Great. Everybody from Alexander the Great to Einstein had a math textbook that they learned math in. But you've never heard of it. It's not a coincidence. It's because the state destroyed it and got rid of it. Uh, But it is exactly like this. It's called Euclid's Elements. You start with the ability to just create a circle using a compass and draw a straight line. You go all the way through Pythagorean theorem, you know, some really interesting stuff. And it's all very systematic and incremental. And there's never a moment in that entire volume where you're ever frustrated because it's very clear how these shapes connect together and why they connect together because the guy was a decent teacher and he did it in a systematic way. So now the, the, the one thing that I will say is there's no Euclid's elements for programming right now. So you're going to have frustrating moments because you are going to be trying to jump 10 steps. Um, and sometimes you have to do that and it's messy, but as long as you know that that's what's happening, right? As long as you know, it's, it's not that you're dumb. It's just that the resources aren't quite there right now. You're going to have to kind of hack your way through it and come back to it and go do something else or ask a friend. Um, then, you know, it's not so bad. Sure, sure. Yeah, and, and I mean, like I said, I've, 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 you know, done like the first seven or eight levels of math bots, and uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting and entertaining. Yes, um, it, it definitely is. I will just mention um, that uh, um, just, just because if I was putting together a project and there were, you know, if someone is having issues, I'd want to know about them. Um, oh yeah. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so there, there, there were. I've, I've tried it on two different occasions, and I've stopped because um, these, these two reasons. So um, there are times when I'd, you know, run the, I guess, run the function. And the play button would disappear, and I have to go back to MathBot and uh, MathBot.com and go through the login yeah. process again and go back to the puzzle. <clears throat> but um, there was, uh, all, I guess, uh, quite a few times when I've tried to do it, um, Alt Zero just kind of you know spun and didn't actually log me in, so I couldn't actually get yeah. back into um, get back into the puzzle. So I figured I'd mention those to you just so you're aware no, of them real- if, if you aren't if you weren't aware of them yet. No, it's super helpful. And it, I mean, it's a good thing to point out to everybody that's listening to mathbot.com isn't finished yet. We're in progress. So you, you probably are not going to want to use a mobile device yet. Uh, Chrome, Chrome on a Mac or, um, uh, Chrome on a windows box is the most popular browser that's being used right now. So if you do that, you're less likely to run into bugs. And, uh, yeah, we're still building it. So right now I think we've got about 40 ish levels up. We're going to be putting out another, I would say another 10 within a week and then another, uh, 10 more uh, a week after that. Cause we kind of got through a difficult problem. Um, but yeah, you're going to run into, you're going to run into bugs. Um, sure. both of those bugs, fortunately we did know about, and I think they're both fixed. Um, so if you see them again, definitely hit me up on Twitter. Uh, but that, I mean, it's it's a very it's a very iterative process with software. Um, so what's what's kind of interesting is that learning how to write code is really easy. Um, but even doing something as simple as 
this program uh, is actually not simple at all. Um, there's there's dozens of layers of abstraction involved. So what that means is that there are uh, there's dozens of developers that are working on different parts, and we're pulling in solutions from different people. Like you mentioned, Auth0. You know, this is a pretty popular website for managing your login stuff. It's terrible. I mean, they've got tens of thousands of users, uh, but it's garbage. So as somebody that understands Austrian economics, you know that there's a ton of opportunity here, right? I mean, a website that sucks and all it does is it just asks for your new username and password and validates it. Um, you know, the, in, in fairness to those guys, it's probably a much harder problem than, uh, than I give it credit for because it usually is once you, uh, once you dig into it. But, um, but it just shows how much opportunity there is there. On the other hand, if we pull this off, we get to put out thousands, maybe millions, if we're lucky of school teachers out on the street, you know, with, uh, with a will work for food sign. So, uh, it's not easy, but if we can pull it off, um, it'll have a really big impact. So yeah, join us man learn how to code i'll help you <laughs> awesome awesome and yeah i mean it's uh it's 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 a really really great project and i think you mentioned in other places that uh or in other uh in other episodes that um there's ways to incentivize children to uh you know using bitcoin to actually you know tr- learn learn math and, and programming and have fun doing it so you, you want to speak to that real briefly yeah, there's been a, I mean, it, it's kind of silly to say this because it's obvious that, uh, that especially if you're an Austrian economist sort of person, it's obvious that incentives are incentivizing. Right? <laughs> it's obvious that rewards are motivating. Uh, but there, there have been studies that uh, just to, to, you know, appeal to the, the group that uh, doesn't like uh, a priori logic, but um, there have been studies in the public schools where even if you go into like the worst school, like the worst inner city school with the worst students, and you say, I tell you what, if you get above a B, I'll give you 50 bucks. So every time you get a B or better on a test, you get 50 bucks or 10 bucks or whatever whatever number they used. I can't remember. Um, there, there's been a lot of studies that show that test scores greatly improve. Um, and in fact – uh, I think it's one of the, one of the things that's obvious about that is that the students would start, uh, they would have an incentive to start holding teachers accountable, right? Um, like I got a B, well, you didn't explain this very well and I studied and I tried. <laughs> whatever, right? So I think there's some side effects of that, that they didn't like, but, uh, but it's been done in public schools. It's well documented. Um, now they're not doing it. Uh, and the reason that they're not doing it is actually amazing. Uh, I was actually talking to somebody on Twitter today. Uh, good guy. I think he's a libertarian dude. Uh, but this th- this um, this insidious piece of propaganda has not only been used to uh, to completely remove any accountability from teachers, but it's actually you know like a lot of this uh, garbage, like Keynesianism or whatever. It seeped into the whole culture. So this guy is thinking like, I don't want to reward my son if he learns math, because then it will remove the inherent joy of learning math. Huh? It's just, it's mind boggling to me. Uh, so in other words, if you get rewarded for doing good things, you won't do good things for the joy of doing good things. That's, that's not how the universe works, man. We, we do good things because we want the outcome, right? Like I'll, I'll build my neighbor's fence because I want my neighbor to enjoy his fence. Now, if you're telling me I can only build my neighbor's fence because I, I just enjoy fence building, like what the heck kind of crazy standard <laughs> is that to put on kids? Like I would never learn anything if it was just for the joy of it. I'd probably just sit around and paint my face all day or something. Um, and it's, you know, it's not, it's not how humans are built. We want to do meaningful 
meaningful work. We want to make other people's lives better and solve problems. And the way that we often keep track of that is the resources that we have at our disposal to do that. So the idea is that um, that if you, if you learn math, you can get a little bit of Bitcoin. Well, that allows you to buy things that you want to buy. Maybe it's stuff that you want to buy, right? Maybe it's an ice cream or maybe you want to buy your sister something. You want to do something nice. Um, that's not demotivating, right? It's not demotivating to have more power over the universe around you. That's, that's pretty much what we're trying to do half the time just to stay alive. Um, so the basic idea in MathBot is, um, once we get to this point, we're still working on the basic programming levels right now. Uh, but like I said, we should be done with that in the next month or so. Um, we're going, and we've already, we've already designed all the levels through, uh, uh, through exponents, but let's say that, um, let's say that you have a kid and you want him to learn, uh, uh, exponents. You can say, I'll, I'll basically pay $50. And as the kid passes levels in learning exponents, he'll get two or three bucks every time he passes a level. Um, and what's nice about that is that then we can take maybe 10%, uh, from that and use it as tips for all of the developers and all of the people that have worked in marketing and other places, um, to, to get the word out about MathBot and just contributed to it. So that's kind of how we're planning on funding the project. Um, but the great thing about it is that that's, uh, that's how humans work, right? We want to solve problems and we want to get rewarded for doing it. And, uh, it makes for a really smooth transition, I think, because if kids have learned how to do difficult things and enjoy the fruits of their labor, there's not like this weird moment where they have to actually go solve other people's problems after, you know, spending eight years learning, you know, American literature in college. And now they actually have to care about somebody else to feed themselves. So right. I'm, you know, I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir quite a bit with, uh, with some of the, the economic incentive stuff, but, um, yeah, that's the basic idea. We don't have that code written yet though. Um, so it's not live right now. Uh, MathBot will always be free for everybody to play all the levels because our ultimate objective is to put all the public school teachers out of business. Um, but if you have <laughs> love a kid it. or you have, <laughs> yeah, if you if you've got a kid or a grandkid, or uh, we're we're experimenting a little bit with uh, a charity in Venezuela um, where people can. Uh, it's not up and running yet, but uh, but we're we're trying to figure out how to make it work. Um, we're somebody could maybe pay 50 bucks and have a kid in Venezuela learn programming. And th that kid would be rewarded, uh, with, you know, 90% uh, of the money that's donated, uh, as they pass levels. Um, the, one of the nice things though, that this highlights is how amazing Bitcoin is because we couldn't do this with credit cards. There's no, if Bitcoin did not exist, I could not reward kids in this way, uh, by paying them when they pass levels in programming. Well, payment, and I payment, think that, payment processor, shut that down. <laughs> Well, I mean, even if they liked it, which I don't think they would shut us down. I mean, in, in the sense that we're not, uh, like we're very politically motivated, but if you go out to mathbot.com, it's just learn math and programming, right? Like hopefully, you know, none of the statists actually want to kill me, even though they know my objective is to put all the public school teachers out of business at the end of the day, you know, I'm, I'm building a piece of software that makes it really easy to learn math. Um, and you know, I've actually had a couple public school teachers that are using it in their classrooms already. I'm fine with that. Right. Um, but, uh, 
geez, sorry, I lost my train of thought. I was thinking of this one public school teacher I was thinking about, she teaches uh, special ed. And I was just wondering how that was going because she's trying to, she's trying to teach kids that actually have learning disabilities, math using MathBot um, instead of, uh, instead of taking kids that, uh, you know, don't have learning disabilities and using math to convince them that they do so that they get, you know, mentally neutered uh, with chemicals uh, like Ridlin or whatever else they're showing these days. Um, Sorry, completely lost my train of thought there. Man. Sorry. <laughs> hey, that's. I think you were talking about uh, this wouldn't be possible without Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah. So the reason that it wouldn't work without Bitcoin is that, um, well, one, you have fees with with credit cards that you don't really notice um, as the buyer. Uh, but basically, everything that you buy with a credit card, well, everything that you buy anywhere is roughly three percent more expensive just because of the credit card fees that the the seller has to has to cover. Um, and they don't, they're not allowed. Like if, if you had a hamburger stand and you wanted to charge 10 bucks for, you know, a hamburger cook and fries, um, and then you wanted to charge like a $10 and 30 cents, uh, to cover the credit card fee, the credit card processors will shut you down. They won't let you do that because the visas and the MasterCards that have these uh, these government sponsored monopolies effectively, they don't want to make it transparent that sure. they're making all of our stuff more expensive, even on fees. But if you take that to the e-commerce world, which is you know what this is, you don't actually have anybody standing in front of you. It gets a lot worse. Um, because if, uh, you know, if you're going to pay with a credit stolen credit card, but you got to walk up, that's different, but there's a market for stolen credit cards. Um, and so you've got the fees, but you've also got a certain number of your sales, uh, are going to go to people that don't actually own the credit card that was presented to you, which means if you're like shipping out shoes, this is yeah, really char- bad. Chargebacks, yeah. Yeah, the chargebacks will kill you. I mean, if you sell somebody, if you sell somebody shoes for a hundred bucks, and then the credit card processor tells you, "Oh, that wasn't actually the owner of the credit card," you just have to eat that. Which, you know, if you're making a ten percent profit margin on selling shoes, the next ten shoes that you sell are just to make up for the last fraudulent purchase. Um, so what that means is that we're not actually paying three percent more for our stuff. We're probably paying closer to ten percent uh, because of those chargebacks and the fees. Um, so that would be, that would be a big issue. Um, so, but no, no big deal, right? 10%, I would just have to hold back 20%, uh, in order, you know, my, uh, it would, it would suck, right? Instead of being able to pass on nine bucks to the kids. Okay, fine. I can only pass on eight bucks for every 10 bucks that, that gets sent in, but I can still make it work. Sure. But the thing that really makes it impossible is that, if you give me $10 in a credit card transaction and then I find a way to give you money, which I don't even know how, how I would do that, right? Like I'm going to, I'm going to have all of the kids sign up to be merchant processors so that I can, I can give them a, a visa uh, credit or something. Yeah. Like that, that's not practical at all. But even if I could do that, even if I could find a way to do that, maybe I do a direct deposit into the kids accounts once a month with their balance or something goofy like that. That's very demotivating. Um, even if I could pull that off, I still couldn't do it because if grandma gives me 10 bucks and then I give eight, bun- eight bucks to little Susie, but then it turns out grandma didn't really give me the, the, the 10 bucks. Then I've actually shipped out cash to somebody. Right. Um, and I can't pull that back. So sure. I would be stuck eight bucks poorer. 
Um, and if that's not bad enough, the, the attackers and the hackers and the fraudsters would find out about it and they would just drain me out. Uh, so what's nice about Bitcoin is that once I have it, I have it and I can send it on to somebody else and, uh, there's no, there's no chargeback risk. So, um, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting applications like MathBot um, because this capability just didn't exist. And frankly, it didn't even exist before Lightning, right? Like, I part of the reason that I haven't enabled this in MathBot is that um, that I know that I really need Lightning to be able to do this because it's the only way that I could have it be instant and low fee in a predictable way. Um, so we're, we're just, we're just getting started, right? Like the applications are, are really, really interesting. Um, lightning is like I said, there, I mean, as we sit right now, there is not an app for the iOS that allows you to use any cryptocurrency that has any chance of being secure and be money and send transactions instantly. And there never has been, I mean, people overstated the capabilities of Bitcoin and other things, but as of right now, we still don't have that. So, um, there's a lot of opportunity to, uh, to, to improve things. And, uh, as a programmer, you know, it's just everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I definitely agree. I definitely agree. And that was one thing I really liked about MathBot was kind of that uh, that incentive pro that uh, I guess additional incentive program beyond just learning. Um, that's uh, yeah, you get a little Bitcoin if uh, if you if you do these little if you do the if you learn this uh, learn this math challenge. I think it's I think it's great. I think it's uh, it's absolutely great. So um, I don't have anything else uh, on my end. I'm, I'm sure I could, I could go on. We, I'm sure we could go on for another two hours. But um, I think this is, this is a good start. And we can always have you have you back on. So I guess uh, do you have any uh, conc- I guess uh, closing thoughts for the listeners? Anything you'd like them to take away from uh, from our discussion today? Yeah, I, I guess the the theme for for me today is um, like don't don't let government run your life. Uh, and I know that that's you know trite, but um, but there's there's a couple ways that you can you can take back power, right? One is you can build tools that change the landscape of the world that we live in. Um, and the other is you can take advantage of the tools that are out there uh, to, to uh, navigate the world on your own. So don't drop your kids off at public school or private school that's you know essentially a public school with a better veneer on it. Uh, take advantage of tools like MathBot, uh, Khan Academy, where they're not too bad and they don't have too much common core that they're shoving down your throat. Um, and uh, you know, raise your own kids, uh, buy your own food, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> leave the government out of your life as much as possible. Hell yeah, I can I, I can certainly get behind that. I can certainly get behind that. So I guess last thing, uh, it's on screen, but for the podcast listeners, where can they find you? Uh, you know, check out mathbot.com, uh, M-A-T-H-B-O-T.com. Um, and then you can also reach me uh, if it's not MathBot related, um, you can, or even if it is, you can re- reach me at jwweatherman.com or on Twitter as weatherman I am. All right, fantastic. Well, thank you so much for uh, for, for your time today, JW. It's been uh, it's been a great honor, uh, especially after uh, you know watching uh, all of your interviews, and I've i found them all valuable. So, uh, thank you for for all of your work and for for taking some time this evening. Yeah, yeah. Thanks a lot, man. It's been a lot of fun. All right, awesome. All right, guys, that's all I've got for you. LibertyUnderAttack.com. I uh, hope you guys uh, enjoyed the stream today. Right, we'll talk soon.